Thank you, gentlemen. We continue that worship, those expressions now as we turn to God's Word. So take your Bible that you have and turn to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, I echo Jim's words, a welcome, a warm welcome to you. If you do not have a copy of God's Word with you, just look in the rack in front of you. You will see one right there. Please help yourself to that. Follow along the book of Romans, Acts, then Romans. You'll find in the New Testament, we're in chapter 1. And last week, we opened our study of this letter, the book of Romans, by looking at the first verse, Romans 1.1. And we looked at the man, because he is who sets off this first verse, the man who God used to deliver These words, these God-breathed words, Paul, he is the one. Paul, remember, look at verse 1, a slave of Christ Jesus, meaning, as we covered, owned by Christ. Not owned in part, owned completely, purchased, bought by Christ. Paul, called to be an apostle, that means God called Paul. It means Paul did not call on God. That's what that means, to be called by God, God's initiation, his action. And Paul, the one set apart, that word means consecrated, consecrated, a word that is always used in God's word to denote the things of God, things and people set apart. So consecrated is set apart for service, In the Bible's case, set apart unto the Lord. That's consecration. Paul was set apart, and let's now continue where we left off. Look at the end of verse 1. Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. Do you see that expression there at the end of verse 1? The gospel of God. We're going to see in Romans, this, the gospel of God, is the vehicle For the righteousness of God, not only revealed, but worked in salvation. It is through, by way of the gospel of God. Now you might say this morning, and in one sense we all should as we begin and come across this expression, maybe anew, what is the gospel of God? What is it? What is the gospel of God? I asked you this week, what would you say if you were asked that question tomorrow at work? A relative around Thanksgiving, tell me, what is the gospel of God? What would you say? Well, that's the question that this opening begs. Constructed so well here in the end of verse 1, everything that flows out of verse 1 is going to answer this question right through the whole course of the letter. What is the gospel of God? Again, the verses that follow by introductory remarks will help us this morning. Let's look at them. Let's Pick it up in verse 2. The gospel of God, which, verse 2, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord, those are the words that we will look at this morning. Breathed out, given by you, God, and now here we have them providentially supernaturally, Lord, to study them, to learn them. Lord, give us eyes to see them, give us minds to understand, hearts to receive, and as we always ask, hands and feet to live them. God, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. These opening verses, if you look at them again by survey, they really serve to set the table for this book as a whole. That's what they aim to do. Gospel, in all of its constituent parts, is what this Roman letter contains. That's what we're talking about. We'll see man for who he is truly. We'll see God for who he is truly. And we, of course, will see Christ and where he enters in 
to the relation between God and man. And of course, we will be called to a response. We will see that in this letter. It's what it begs. As such, in Romans, in this study, in this letter, our gospel understanding, I can say this with you, will be both exposed and enhanced. Our gospel understanding will be exposed, and might I respectfully say for all of us, it'll be exposed for the deficiencies that it has, and it will be enhanced, taken what we have been given and known, and God will grow us through that. So I look forward to that with you. So what is the gospel? The gospel, beloved, you know this, I hardly need to make comment on it, but it must, so abandoned today, so misunderstood, and so lost today. Is that not true? Gospel tramped on, we could say. Well, this morning, as this letter opens, we embark on a rediscovery expedition. Not to dig it out because we need to do this because we're the ones responsible for it, but for our own understanding. And so that our lives reflect the glory of the gospel and the commission that flows out of the gospel. That's why. And we need this. And so we said last week when we opened, especially today in the righteousness of today. To begin then, let's zero in on how the text identifies and names the gospel. We've said it already, but we want to look closely at it. Look again at the end of verse 1. The gospel of God. You're familiar often with people who would say the gospel. Well, it's not just the gospel. Grammatically, there's possession here, right? There's a relationship here. The gospel of God. I cannot overstate that this morning. I can't. The original word, I want you to look at the gospel there. The original word lying behind gospel is euangelion, a word that means good news. That's what that word means, good news. And of course, I know you know about good news. As Christians, we're all about good news. Good news, of course, is what stands behind gospel. It's the word from which we get the word evangelical. And certainly we know evangelical. I would submit to you, evangelical doesn't mean what people say that it means today. If you hear people say, I go to an evangelical church, listen to me. I tell you respectfully, it doesn't mean what you think it means. But what it does mean or what it should mean is of good news. What it was designed to mean when people align their churches in evangelical churches say, we pertain to good news. We are of good news. That's what it's supposed to mean. Again, I have no qualms telling you it certainly doesn't mean that in the majority of the church world today. But that's where we get evangelical from, of good news. Are you a church of good news? Now we'll return to what that good news is exactly in a moment as we look at verse 2. But for the purpose of this title and intro, however, note that Paul does not simply say, I was set apart for the gospel. Gospel, period, is true and even used elsewhere. He will stop at gospel, but not here as he opens the letter. He wants to give you an association. He wants to tie this gospel very precisely. As this letter opens, Paul is making, here it is, an authoritative declaration. In fact, if I was being even more specific, I would say, in fact, an authoritative clarification. We'll talk about the world that he was speaking into in a moment, which is just as true today. Not just a declaration of this gospel, whose gospel it is, but a clarification This is not good news proper, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. This is the good news of God. This is the gospel of God. That title refers both to the source, note it, the source and the content of the gospel. Both God. Do you see that? All God. All His. The gospel is from God. It's His gospel, His good news, and the gospel is about God. It is good news about God. And I ask you, where do we enter into that? We don't. One of the reasons why evangelical doesn't mean what it means is because we've inserted all manner of man into the gospel. Again, both of those realities, this letter will make clear repeatedly from God about God. What is the gospel? It's good news from God about God. What is the gospel? It is good news from God about God. We have nothing to do with it. And beloved, we need those regular reminders. If you'll bear with me this morning, we need them. Are you not tired of all kinds of men and women inserted into the gospel? No more. Because today, indeed, it is gospel confusion. 
The gospel is not doing good things. The gospel is not a collection of people that do good things. That's not the gospel. That is certainly not, in and of itself, a gospel church. Well, they're a gospel church because they do good things, whatever that means. They're not a gospel church because they help society. That's not the gospel. The Lions Club, the Rotary helps society. They're not gospel organizations. And you're not a gospel church because you meet the culture and you're relevant and people actually want to come through the door. It's scary if people want to come through the doors, right? Because the gospel is offensive to humanity. It needs to be said, beloved, because it's everywhere. Let us not be shy to admit it. Westmount, do not confuse any of those with the gospel of God. More, the gospel is not a story. I get the expression, a gospel is his story, and I understand that. But the gospel is not a story. Don't equate it with a fable and a once upon a time. The gospel is not an experience or a personal God moment. That's not the gospel. Warm, abdominal feeling is not the gospel. This one is very confusing today because we are such a sensual society. And when we take the gospel and we apply it to our flesh, we make it a sensual gospel and we have to then feel it. I don't feel what you're saying. I don't feel that good news. Well, that's not what it is. I was reflecting on this this week. Someone asked me this week to share my testimony with them. And I did, and I had to think for a moment before I responded, because one thing I wanted to get straight in my mind is, I'm not sharing the gospel. Does that make sense? I gave my testimony of what the sovereign grace of God did in my life, but I did not share the gospel. Now, one of the reasons I didn't, because I was in an audience of born-again believers, regenerated believers. But I did not give the gospel. I gave a testimony. But let's not confuse those things. I remember being taught over and over again, this is how you share your story. And then somewhere along the way, it got conflated to be the gospel. Oh no, those experiential things have nothing to do with God, man, and our need for eternal salvation. Look at two men in the Bible. Nicodemus and Paul will tell you something very different testimonially, won't they? But they will give you the same gospel. Give you the same gospel. And you know, this confusion that we're in today of what the gospel is and all these misassociations, it would be, could be true back in the first century as well. Euangelion alone could have meant any kind of good news. See, there's nothing new. Back then, and most especially in ancient times, it could have been any kind of good news. And thus, Paul opens this letter with an important clarifier about this good news. Paul states, this is the good news of God. This is God's euangelion. This is his good news. It's not just any good news. This is the sketch and the summary we find to open the book in these verses. Now, this introduction would be necessary to the church and saints in a major city like Rome. So we want to make sure we get this right as we think about the initial audience of this letter. Rome was big and major, like it still is today. A city, one can be sure, with all manner of good news being piped in the streets. I want you to picture that. That's Rome, just like today. All manner of good news is being thrown at you all the time. This is good news, this is good news. And a big ancient city of Rome would be no stranger to Euangelion. However, this good news, again, was different. This good news was not pedestrian. And this is precisely the reason why Paul puts it this way to open the letter. This is the good news of God. And I pray with those stresses, by the end of this letter, we will see that and understand that. Now, the reality of a big, bustling, populated city was not the only reason that a gospel clarifier, a statement of gospel authority, was needed to open the letter. It's another one I submit to you. Rome also was not a city that Paul had yet visited. When he wrote this letter, he hadn't visited Rome yet. This becomes clear as we'll see when we study it. In chapter 15, we'll learn that Paul had longed for years, the text says, to come to them. That's what he says to the Roman saints. I've longed to come to you. Paul had been sent many places to this point when he writes Romans already. He'd been sent on three separate missionary journeys. He traveled all over Asia Minor and Macedonia. He had covered the east. That's what I want you to think in your mind. He had covered all points east. 
in ancient times. But to this point, by the middle of the first century, he had had no occasion for Rome. And now as he writes, and by the way, he wrote this letter by the end of his third missionary journey. It was almost done. Rome now was on the horizon. He recognizes his work in the east is done, and now soon he will be headed west. As he will state at the end of the letter, his goal is to reach the far end of the west at that time, which would have been Spain. That's his goal, to get to the west. Paul is eyeing Spain to unevangelized land, land without good news yet. That was his goal, do you see, to give good news to people that hadn't heard it. That was his goal. It's his ultimate aim. And on the way, he desires to stop in Rome. So he says this, chapter 15, verse 24. He says, to see you, that would be the Roman saints, in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. So we got a bit of his travel plans there. It would seem Paul looked at Rome as his base of operations. It's like his Antioch West, right? Where Antioch, he sprung off to go east here, Here, it would be to go west, a nice base of operations, a big city for help. Paul had just one, though, order of business left. He had just one order of business left, an offering delivered to Jerusalem. In fact, he says this in chapter 15, verse 25. Come, I'm on my way to Jerusalem to give them an offering to the saints. That's my bypass before I come to you. This is the offering, by the way, if you're wondering, in the Corinthian letters, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this is the offering that's in view, this very offering that he's taking. Well, after that delivery, his plans were then to go to Rome and journey west. Of course, the rest of the New Testament reveals Paul would indeed get to Rome, right? We know that. He would get to Rome by way of Jerusalem at the end of this third missionary journey. However, he would get to Rome in chains. Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem, Acts 21 records that. Paul appeals to Caesar in Acts 25. And then finally he arrives in Rome, Acts 28. However, Paul is not there yet. But that's what's coming as we know by the rest of the New Testament. As he writes this letter to the Roman saints, he's almost on his third missionary journey with an aim to get to Rome. And again, he's only readying himself here in this letter. It's like a a preview letter to the Roman saints to meet them, which brings us to the final reason why Paul uses the gospel of God term here in verse 1. Paul seeks not only to declare gospel authority, but to secure gospel unity. Again, Rome was big and predominantly Gentile. Lots of different types would have been in Rome. A big, varied group of saints... Likely very new saints, young, urban, raw, fleshly, opinionated, that would have been Rome. Such a diverse group of church saints needed to be united, just as big groups do today, right? They needed unity. But they needed to be unified rightly. That still is the problem today, isn't it? Why can't we all just get along? And we look for all manners of unifying ourselves that miss it entirely. That is united not around good news, but here it is, beloved, united not around just good news, but the good news of God, objective one measure. It has been said that only loyalty to the gospel can can secure unity in the church. That is true. That was true in Rome as Paul picked up the pen for this letter. And Westmount, it's still true for us today as we read and consider this letter this morning. We are not gathered together here in this building around a piece of good news, something that you all need to see. We're not a collection of the called out ones to interpret and give thoughts as we fancy. We are not worshiping and rejoicing like we have this morning because someone here in this room is actually onto something good. That's why you're all here, because you know what? I don't know what's going on in Clonsilla, but they're on to something. No, that's not why. No, we gather by way of the gospel of God, like saints of all time have. As Paul would say in his letter to the Galatian church, Galatians 1.11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is what? Not man's gospel. In other words, remove the thought that these words are men's words. No, Paul writes these inspired words that are the euangelion of God, the good news of God. 
Beloved, I must keep stressing, this pertains to his gospel. With that, let us consider this gospel and its introduction here. Here we'll see three opening aspects of the gospel of God. Let's get to the first. Number one, the promise of the gospel of God. The promise of the gospel of God. Verse 2 says, The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Lots there. Describing the gospel, the through, the in. Let's look at it. You see first promised beforehand. And look at that. I want you to look at that. That actually is all one word. Promised beforehand is one word in the original. The beforehand part actually is emphasized. It's a prefix in the original. They're just saying this is what you need to see. There's a promise, yes, but it was promised before. Divine authorship says you need to see that. It's calling our attention. The gospel of God was promised beforehand. And then the beforehand is explained in the text. Beforehand how? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What the instrument and location there. Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is a direct pointer, of course, to what? The Old Testament. This is pointing to the Old Testament. Look at the words. Through who? His prophets. And by the way, his reaches back to verse 1 and refers to God. So it makes sense. The gospel of God is given through who? God's prophets. That makes complete sense. God's prophets. Not man's prophets. God's prophets. So God's gospel was promised by way of God's prophets. More, God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The location cannot be clearer These are not just writings proper or fancy ancient writings, but look at it, holy writings. Let's go back to consecration, set apart writings, the holy scriptures, which in the first century, when Romans was penned, by the way, was what? The Old Testament writings. This is the Old Testament writings. By using the term, in fact, as Paul does, By using the term Holy Scriptures, Paul is referring to the established body of writings that would have already been recognized as Scripture and hence sacred. That's what he's doing. He's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. Think about that. For the gospel of God. We don't make that association today. We think New Testament. But Paul is associating the gospel with the Old Testament. In other words, Paul is saying this gospel of God is not new news, but what? It's old news. It says, you know this. This would be the very accusation leveled at Paul in Acts 21-28 that led to his arrest. That he had something new and he was stirring up the people with something new. Yet Paul here, as he does in his other letters, declares that this is nothing new. In verse 2 here, Paul makes clear that this good news is from God and of God and of old. And it's always been the message of God. The good news of God, again, is not a New Testament declaration. And we need to... Maybe course correct in our own minds. The gospel of God didn't pop up in the first century. It didn't arrive on the scene with Jesus in one sense. The gospel of God was always the message of the Old Testament. Same news. The euangelion has always declared this news. Listen, it's always Old Testament news said this. That God, the one true God, is bringing salvation. That's been the good news. Old Testament and new. And that salvation of God, that salvation of God, is the only hope of man. You know Old Testament texts that say that. Because man is incapable of his own salvation. Left to himself, man faces ruin. Now we're going to look at some of those in a moment, but think about this. That is the Old Testament. That's what it says. The gospel of God says that God and God alone is extending salvation by way of himself to his people. It is his plan and his work alone all him to save the helpless, to save the sinner. That's the gospel of God. And that has always been the good news of God. Genesis 3.15. In fact, theologians call it the proto-euangelion. The first good news. In the wake of the first sin, God says to the serpent, embedded in the curse, by the way, God says, I will put enmity, snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, that word is seed, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first announcement of good news, right in the curse. In the garden before a helpless and hopeless Adam and Eve, God promises. Now that's beforehand, right? 
I will save you. The seed I will give, I will destroy Satan. That is good news. Genesis 3, good news. That's the same message in the prophets. It is the good news of Isaiah, for example. Isaiah 45. Listen to Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. What a proclamation. By myself I have sworn from my mouth is gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, God says, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Chapter 61, very familiar words. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to what? Bring good news. Same word. Good news to the poor. And what's that good news? He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Those words sound familiar. Indeed, they are. In Luke 4, when Jesus goes to Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads exactly that. In other words, he says, I am the fulfillment of the good news. I am the embodiment of the euangelion. It is me. I'm the one you've been waiting for, and I have come. The gospel of God, back to the Old Testament, is the same good news of Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah 15.20. God says to his people, I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. Same news. It's the good news of Jonah inside the fish. Chapter 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the good news announced there. Exact same words, by the way, from the psalmist in Psalm 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That gospel of God promised beforehand in those scriptures. That's all New Te- or Old Testament. But more, more, it's precisely when we come to the New Testament, what the apostles recognize has been said from of old. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, ministering to a different assembly, the Corinthians, says this in chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Note the past feeling there. That Christ died for our sins, what? In accordance with the Scriptures. This is again first century. And then more. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, what? In accordance with the Scriptures. What does Paul do over and over again? He says, you know, this is what has always been said. The good news has always been in accordance with the scriptures. Just as God said, it has always been. There too in the Old Testament, holy writings, no different. Salvation from God and by God. That is the gospel of God. Genesis to Revelation. Declared in the old and now here in the new, Paul only picking up the gospel promise beforehand and now expanding it in light of who has come. Which brings us to our second point. We've looked at the promise of the gospel of God. Now let's zero in on the person of the gospel of God. The person of the gospel of God. Here in the next two verses, we're given the content of this gospel of God. That's what we have. Look at verse 3 and 4. Paul introduces there concepts he's going to elaborate on later in the letter. As such, we're going to follow Paul closely here. Before we look at verse 3 and 4, we're going to follow him closely here. He's merely introducing... So that's what we're going to do too. We're going to follow him so there's more to come is what we're saying. Certainly in no way can we unpack all the great truths, but the letter will as we move along. So let's continue. Verse 3. Concerning, so the gospel of God, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And indeed we can, I read it that way because grammatically we can add the gospel of God at the end of verse 1 to the beginning of verse 3. It's as if he just keeps expanding. I'm going to tell you more about this gospel of God. I'm going to tell you more. Concerns his son, right? Still tied to God. Note that the descriptions Paul is giving are still tied to God. The gospel of God concerning God's son. That is, God's son, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ. The words here is telling us that Jesus Christ, the gospel of God concerns him. There's no other agency here. This is the triune God in plan and in person. And here Paul takes us to God the Son, the God-man. The gospel concerns him. What follows then is a brief survey of the ministry of God's Son 
in the gospel. So first, there's the ministry leading up to the cross and resurrection. Look at verse 3. The Son, Jesus Christ, descended from David according to the flesh. You see that? The center of the gospel, at the heart of the good news, has always been a son, has always been a seed. A seed, meaning a human descendant in a line of one promised to come. That's what we mean. And that's the same seed referenced all the way back in Genesis 3.15, the expectation of that seed. That connective tissue weaves all the way through the Old Testament. Right up to those coming to John the Baptist and saying, are you the seed? Are you the one, the promised one to come? Right? There's always this Jewish expectation of the seed. So this would have been nothing new. And the good things, this is what the good news says, that that seed will bring. There's always been the expectation. And here Paul takes us to him. For the cross, resurrection, same seed again promised. But listen, we need to get the humanity piece here. This is the very real way that God brought seed, brought son into the world. How did he do that? Well, that seed would come from the line of Judah, Genesis 49 tells us that. And in the line of David, 2 Samuel 7, a son who's coming in a line of men and chosen men. Isaiah 11, by the way, captures this vividly. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, listen to this. When you think about where the promised expected one is coming from. 11, 1 says this in Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse was David's father. So here there's a recognition from that stump, that shoot, one is coming from that line. That's the language. And a branch, noted, from his roots shall bear fruit. And then this verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit will rest on him, very clearly pointing forward to what event on the shores of the Jordan that opens many of the Gospels. The baptism of Jesus Christ when the Spirit descends on him to confirm. And what does God the Father say? This is my beloved Son. All of this expectation capped and fulfilled with Jesus Christ. Of course, Matthew 1.1 says what? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David. Then what? What are you learning? Some of you learning. Then a line of descendants confirming that fact. That Jesus Christ not only came from the line of David, but here's the point, was born of flesh. Under the providence of God, orchestrating all through the line, born of flesh. Philippians 2.7 confirms this reality of the person of the gospel of God. It says, as he took the form of a servant, he, the son, Jesus, being born in the likeness of men. There's a confirmation. Passage goes on to say in verse 8 that Christ, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So that's what's going on here in Romans 1 3. This is the humiliation of Christ's ministry, right? Descended from David of the flesh. But that's not all there is. Second, this seed, this son that came in flesh and humiliation, note this, beloved, didn't stay there. How many wrong, perverse understandings! In false religions of Jesus. He was a great man. A great moral teacher. Yes, I'm fine that you like Jesus. And you don't sleep in on Sundays. And give your morning to him. I'm fine if you do that. But he was just a man. Don't stay there. He came down and bore the sins of his people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Was crucified, died, and was buried. Yes, that work of Christ is what the gospel of God declares, but there's more. Verse 4, let's see it. And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God. The eternal Son of God has always been the Son of God. But when he left that tomb empty on the third day, after coming down in humiliation, after being crucified after being buried, when he left that tomb on the third day, when he conquered the grave, he was declared not just the Son of God, which he's always been, eternity past, but he was declared the Son of God in power. 
That's it. This is the ministry hinge where the seed went from Messiah, from the anointed one, from Jesus Christ, to the end of verse 4 to this, Jesus Christ, what? Our Lord. And how did that happen? By way of attestation, through the third person of the Trinity, see him in verse 4, the Spirit of holiness, and we know who that is, the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit rose the Son of God, grave defeated. Beloved, that's all three persons of the Godhead in this gospel of God. Don't miss it. The plan of God the Father, promised beforehand to send His Son, the seed, God the Son, to save sinners by doing what they could not, live a perfect life, and then lay it down to atone. A price then. A price then that would be attested to by God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and then in power raised from the grave. Purchase complete. That's the gospel of God. Salvation from God and by God fully and completely. Westmount, the resurrection of God the Son by way of God the Spirit signaled that God the Father's saving program had begun. That is what Paul was now declaring What was promised beforehand to Israel by way of the prophets is now being preached to all people everywhere. Euangelion for all. And the results of the gospel of God were now evident. Hence our final point, the promise, the person, now the product of the gospel of God. Back to verse 5. Through whom, again, keep tracking, Jesus Christ our Lord, end of verse 4, through him we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Through whom, again, end of verse 4, let's just keep tracking with Paul grammatically here. Through Christ our Lord, our Lord, our Lord. Through him, through the person of the gospel of God, this is what we receive. Look at it, grace and apostleship. Or, we should say here, God's grace of apostleship. Yes, grace. Free, unmerited favor. Grace is what enables the breath you just took. Nothing more, nothing less. By grace you sustain this morning. Grace also, beloved, is what we do not deserve, but we receive it. We don't deserve grace, but we get it. We also receive peace with God. That, Paul, is not forgotten. Is always tied to grace. Peace with God. Grace from God, peace with God. And in the gospel of God, by grace, we are saved through faith. It's God's gift, Ephesians 2. But the gospel of God extends more than than our peace or our saving grace, but it gives sending grace. You see that? We weren't just saved to sit still. We weren't just saved to feel secure that we know where we're going when we die. We weren't just saved to do nothing. We have the grace of apostleship. Apostleship means sent in its simplest form. The grace that sends sent ones like Paul to bring good news. And in that sending, we see three products of the gospel of God, all found in verse 5. Number one, the grace of apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Notice the gospel of God does not declare, and note this please, it doesn't declare the obedience of law. Can we just rest there for a moment? This bristles some folks. The obedience, bad word to some, but it should never be. It should be a glorious word. It doesn't say the obedience of law. It's the obedience of faith. What a gift. What a gift. This is not obedience that is necessary or requisite for faith. Let's be clear. Or it's not faith conditioned on obedience. Let's blow that up. This is the obedience. Here it is, beloved. That is faith. This is the obedience that is faith. That is what is being communicated here. And who do you think of? You think you should Abraham, right? This is what Abraham's life demonstrated. His obedience was his faith, right? His obedience was his faith. That's how you know he was a man of faith, by his obedience. He obeyed because of his faith. That's Abraham. Let's understand this rightly, Westmount. Obedience is not obedience without faith. Can we say that again? 
Obedience is not obedience without faith. You can have all kinds of external compliance, but it's not obedience without faith, right? By the same measure, faith is not faith without obedience. You see that? You can have all kinds of belief in things. You can claim to believe in Jesus Christ, but if you don't obey him, listen to me, you don't have faith. I pray that makes sense. This has always been the call of the gospel of God. And this is marvelous as Paul unveils this letter. He's not calling people to faith. He's calling people to what? The obedience of faith. In other words, this is not just any good news being piped in the street. That you just add to your news item and your feed. This is good news that changes lives. How we miss this today. Good news that is the obedience of faith to receive God's gift of salvation so that we live as we ought, as we should, as we were created to. Gospel to receive it in faith, not work. And to receive and believe in faith is to receive it in obedience. That's faith. Faith that receives Jesus Christ as Savior. But listen, doesn't just receive Jesus Christ as Savior. New Testament writers are crystal clear on this. Jesus Christ as Savior and... Lord, he is not your savior if he is not your Lord. I do need to say that again. He is not your savior if he's not your Lord. If he's not Lord of your life, and listen to me, what does slave mean? Every dimension of your life. He is not your savior if he's not your Lord. Clear, clear in the text. Two, The grace of apostleship for the sake of his name. I do believe that we, and that's a very broad we, have lost the sense of divine privilege that is involved with being called and sent by God. We've lost this for the sake of his name. Maybe you, like me, in a moment, just glossed over that. Oh, yeah, for the sake of his name. Yeah, yeah, for God. How often do we act more like ashamed salesmen and women than ambassadors of Jesus Christ? Church, we're not selling anything. We're not peddling anything. We proclaim the gift of God. We proclaim the solution, remember? The remedy, not from us. We have nothing to offer, and that's what we miss in evangelism. Am I good enough? Are my words good enough? What do they think of me? Get yourself out of the equation. We proclaim the gift from him. Brothers and sisters, we do it for the sake of his name. That is Christ our Lord. Can there be a higher calling after salvation than to herald this good news? Can there be a higher calling in your life than to now be recruited to be a herald of the good news? Beloved, I trust this is your motive as a Christian in everything you do, the glory of God, the glory of God. Listen, our lesser motives are the reason why we're in trouble. Our lesser motives are the reason for so much apathy, for so much straying and so much sin, because we set the bar so low. Don't make the euangelion about how you presented it. Proclaim it for what it is for the sake of his name. I want to quote John Stott here in full. He's been so helpful already as I study this book. I want to quote him in full because this is precisely what is going on with with so many today. This is so on point. I'm going to quote him. Quote, we should be jealous, as scripture sometimes puts it, for the honor of his name. We should be troubled when it remains unknown. We should be hurt when it is ignored. We should be indignant when it is blasphemed and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which it is due. The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as it is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God coming, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's it. Is that your motivation? Westman, there's no higher motivation than glorifying the name of Jesus Christ. None. None. Third, grace of apostleship among all the nations. Paul, of course, was the apostle to the Gentiles. That simply means 
in context in the New Testament to the non-Jew. You were Jew or Gentile, Jew or non-Jew, Gentile. And God made that clear, if you recall, upon his calling. Do you remember in Acts 9? I'm sending him where? Where is the domain of his euangelion? The Gentiles. That was an official designation or appointment by God under being sent, capital A, capital A. He was a capital A apostle. Why do we say that? Because it was only for then and a time. Acts 1 tells us those directly sent by God himself or by Christ himself. Paul was in the last line of those. First century sent directly by Christ's office. Paul and the apostles sent by the Son of God directly where? To all nations. Think Great Commission, etc. This was the charge at Christ's ascension in Acts 1. Go to Judea, Samaria, and to what? To the ends of the earth. Go into all the earth and herald this good news. In other words, herald this grace that I'm sending you with. That's from me and about me. Paul reminds the Roman saints, look at verse 6. He reminds them of this. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, you Roman saint, you Gentile souls, you once far off, are now being called, look at the language, to belong. Wow. And note the location of the belonging. Just linking arms together. And now we have a cause together. Where's the domain of that belonging? Look, Jesus Christ. This letter written first to those that belong in Christ in first century Rome. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. True of Roman saints, beloved, and true of us here at Westmount Saints. This is truth for all of those called by God and set apart and declared holy ones. What does it mean to belong to Jesus Christ? It means this, if, I shouldn't say if, when we are loved by God, we are called to be saints, we are His. We are His. It means we are loved by God and we are called to be saints. Church, this is the product of the gospel of God. This is it. When we look at it from our standpoint, ultimately God's glory, but what are the results that we see horizontally? We're loved by God and we're called to be saints. That we are called not generally, but specifically to be holy ones. Meaning those that are truly his. That's what that means. We are called effectually, irresistibly to be set apart and called as God's own. This is all his work. And he is omnipotent. So when he calls in this way, this is not a gospel call to all nations. This is for those that are his. When he has chosen and called, it's irresistible. Now that would be something on its own. But it is all the more marvelous, let's not miss the first reality, look at it, to be what? Loved by God. Christian, that means you and I are now, now the object of God's affection. And we say now because it wasn't always that way. No, it wasn't always that way. Let's think biblically here. We're not always looked on by God this way. No, in fact, the Word of God has much to say about how He looks on those that are not His. Psalm 5. I'm just going to read the text directly and let it, as Jim said, speak for itself. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You hate all evildoers. Yes, we were rebels, enemies, once the object of God's wrath, and yes, as the text says, his hatred. Not now. Not now. Not now. Not now. No, beloved, because of the gospel of God, and only through the gospel of God, because of God's promise beforehand and the person of his Son, Now, because we've been called, regenerated, saved by God alone, now 
We can rightly declare this product, this result. Now we can say we are loved by God. Not because of anything we did. That's the gospel of God. No cleanup, no work, no action. All God. From him, about God. And because of that in him. And only because of that, and only of that domain belonging to Jesus Christ, can we now have it said of us that we are loved by God. And more, this is our hope, back to Psalm 5. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, not just loved abundantly, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. And there it is, right? No one who doesn't bow down in the fear of God can be called a lover by God. It's hard, but it's glorious, beloved. It's glorious. Through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Praise God, Christian, that is true of you and I. O God of life, how is it that we, your called, are now loved by you? How is that? While we were still sinners, rebels with blood on our hands, you sent your Son for us. What wondrous and mysterious love this is. Who can comprehend it? O God, let us not leave this place with unchanged hearts today. Let us take this glorious gospel truth and not just hear it, but now walk in it. Oh God, help us to do so in these days, in these days when we can. No matter what we wake to tomorrow, we stand this morning in the wake of your Son resurrected in power, knowing that we too will be raised up in power on that day when he comes again. Oh Father, please ignite our hearts in this truth. Let it do what it must. Fuel hope unwavering, we pray. Amen.